Hello, this is Raki on the Sustainable Founders podcast. Today I have Anna Breitzman, co-founder of UpCircle Beauty. Welcome, Anna. Anna, tell me more about your brand, your products, and why you believe you are a sustainable company. Which is a big question. Um, so UpCircle is essentially a skincare brand. We have been running for seven years now. And our brand all started with the idea of wanting to reduce waste. And that kind of light bulb moment happened in a coffee shop, which was actually my brother, who was the co-founder, who, who had that initial penny drop moment where he was asking the barista behind the bar of the coffee shop, which he would always go into on his way to work. What happens with all of the coffee grounds that you tap out from the little silver puck with every single cup of coffee that you make? And the guy told him, well, uh, the council, we have to pay them to come and collect the coffee grounds that we produce. And unfortunately, it gets taken to landfill. So this was like some unknown big environmental impacts that we had we had no clue about as just standard consumers. And so we wanted to form a business that would tackle the issue of coffee waste. The more we researched it, the more we realized that there was a big problem there and one that wasn't going to go away. You know, people love coffee <laughs> globally and we couldn't see that changing. But what would we do? Well, I, as a teenager, really wanted to be a makeup artist. So I had a, a keen interest in skincare products and, and makeup generally. I knew that coffee was a big buzz ingredient because of the caffeine within it and the effects of that on your skin. So we started experimenting using coffee grounds that we would collect from local cafes and turning them into natural exfoliators, extracting the oil from those coffee grounds to create serums, eye creams, etc. And that became our core USP. The clue essentially is in the name, UpCircle. It's a play on the circular economy, the uplifting message that we try to have, and of course, upcycling. So every single product within our range is made with an upcycled ingredient. And we have a full packaging return scheme that we operate across our entire range, which is growing rapidly month on month. So I think we're sustainable because it's, it's built into our brand DNA. We always wanted to be a brand who were doing actively positive things, not just, you know, recovering your own negative impact, but actively uh, doing good and showing that particularly shallow industries like the beauty industry can do a lot better with regards to sustainability. We're certified B Corp, certified organic, certified cruelty-free, certified vegan, certified plastic negative. So I think these certifications also help to bolster our words and the transparency and authenticity and some of the things that we say as well. Thank you so much for sharing. So it's really interesting. So actually, it wasn't even intentional to create a beauty brand, a skincare brand. It, the purpose was just to think, what can we do with the coffee grounds? Yeah, essentially, it was it was the problem that came before the solution for us. So we we, we kind of identified this big issue. And we were like, okay, well, what business are we going to build around that? And of course, the growth of the brand in the last seven years has been really exciting to watch it evolve. And we love looking back at the early days when we had no industry experience in cosmetics. My brother worked in finance and I worked in supermarket area management. So I managed multiple stores, but my expertise was more in logistics and warehousing. And as I say, my brother was strictly kind of the financial brain. But we we kind of started our career paths in a fairly corporate way. And that wasn't necessarily something that we could see ourselves doing long term, despite the fact that, you know, that affords you a lot of stability, career progression, of course, stable money. <laughs> we threw all of that away because we didn't feel fulfilled when we would come home at the end of the day. And we, as a pair, 
have completely opposite strengths. So I think because we were both having that itch in our early 20s to to say, okay, well, look, if we're going to take this massive gamble, if we're going to take this massive risk, perhaps better to do it now before we're interested in starting families or, you know, life kind of gets in the way or it becomes more intimidating to do that. So we were very much keeping our eyes open to inspiration, wherever that might be, you know, staying curious, asking questions and, and waiting for that moment to come. And I think that's exactly what happened when we stumbled upon this issue around coffee waste and that that we decided. Crazy, we, we have no idea how difficult it would be and uh, all of the mad risk and experimentation that we'd have to take over the next three years. But I'm so glad we did it. And, and that was kind of the climate that we were in mentally when when that idea struck. And it can't be easy like to gather all these different ingredients from all these different places. Talk to me about like how that works. Like what's the logistics of it? How do you find these coffee shops that want to get rid of their coffee grounds? And I understand you also use kind of stones. That's it, the stones. And you use citrus as well and lemon, uh, orange peels. I mean, how, how do you find these ingredients? It must be very like manually intensive to go around to collect everything from all these individual producers or users. Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say, I mean, we're now working with over 20 different upcycled ingredients. So coffee was the first one. But as you've mentioned, uh, we've diversified that portfolio an awful lot over the last seven years, working with upcycled ingredients in many different forms, whether that's a physical texture like coffee grounds or chai spices or uh, extracts, which are like oils. Um, We have date seed extracts. We've got blueberry extracts, raspberry extracts. We've got powders like, as you mentioned, olive stone powder, apricot stone powder, argan shell powder. And then we've got waters as well. So things like mandarin fruit water, bergamot and kiwi water as well, all of which are upcycled in very different ways from very different industries and from different countries. The first ingredients that we started to upcycle are by far the most labor intensive and complicated behind the scenes. And I think there's many reasons for that. Firstly, we were perhaps quite naive and ambitious and just always wanted to say yes to everything. As I think is often a good way to go about starting a business is to just grab any opportunity that comes your way. And also the idea of upcycling at that time was much less a mainstream concept. So at the minute, because in a way we were the pioneers in this space and we've proven how popular these concepts can be, now there are entire ingredient suppliers that only focus on upcycled ingredients. And they do all of the legwork for you. They do all the processing. They get all of the certifications. They put them through clinical trials. And so in the more recent ingredients that we've started to work with, we are obviously going to opt for those sorts of suppliers that have done the hard work for us. Because like just a glimpse at the coffee, for example, um, that's something which we have to collect every single day. We have staff who are based just down the road from where we are, which is in South London in a railway arch warehouse location that we have. They have an e-bike, which they pedal to local coffee shops, cafes, and restaurants within about a three-mile radius of where we are. And they collect whatever coffee has been produced in that one given day. They then bring it back to the warehouse to process it so that it's appropriate for use in skincare before it's shipped off to our manufacturers where full-scale manufacturing can commence the following day. The reason that we have to do that is because, as you can imagine, the coffee is both warm and moist. And if we don't act very quickly, you don't want there to be any opportunity for bacteria to grow or anything like that. 
Of course, all of our products go through the same efficacy and stability testing as is required by law. But we've had to work out what the kind of room is for, you know, the speed with which we have to go about processing these ingredients. And the early ingredients are a lot more complicated in that sense because we're doing it all of ourselves. So it's a labor of love for sure, but I think that, you know, it's everything that our brand is about and we believe that it's worth it. And the products are, you know, they the proof is in the product really. So we get lots of brands asking, oh, how do you do it? Like, what's that been like? And we say, well, do you know what? It's just been a lot of trial and error and dedication to, to really proving that, that circular products can be made. Is there volatility in sourcing your ingredients? For example, what if enough people haven't had a cup of coffee that day? Will that influence uh, how much you can collect? Or do you have enough options to always make sure that you have a good supply of ingredients? Uh, it's a great question. And to be honest, it's definitely one of the big risks with a concept like ours is that you are relying on the functioning of other industries in order to get the ingredients that we're working with. And our brand is growing quite fast. And so if that's disrupted, it can be really hard because essentially you have to bring the product off the market or reformulate it or kind of start again. So in COVID, for example, that was a major situation for us to try to navigate because our sales went up vastly because as you can imagine, everyone was at home, they're spending less money on makeup, more money on self-care, skincare, looking after themselves at home with a bit of pampering. So whilst sales shot through the roof, the complexity of our supply chain was just impossible. And coffee shops closed down across the country where our previous coffee suppliers were normally based on tourist high footfall areas. And um, so again, we're based in London. So places like Hackney, Brick Lane, uh, up in yeah, the different sections um, where there were loads of tourists and nightlife and stuff like that. That was completely impossible during COVID. So we had to start again with all of our coffee suppliers. I think it was 60% of the coffee shops that we used to work with closed down permanently. So it's not even that they closed down just during COVID. They were never able to recover. And so now most of our coffee shop suppliers are centered on the ones that we started with during COVID, where they are on the edge of large green spaces like commons or with mobile coffee trucks which was still able to continue to sell during COVID. So that's that's one example of how things can be really difficult. I mean, of course, you can never predict a global pandemic, but we also had a, a more recent product, which was our bath salts, which are made with upcycled rose petals. Now the supplier for that, we had been put in touch with through our buyers at one of our biggest UK retailers. They put us in touch. We spent a year developing this product. It's up for loads of awards at the moment, but then we pulled out of our retail agreement with this stockist. And so they don't sell our products anymore. And then they also said that they were pulling their agreement with supplying us with rose petals, which is a shame because the two things aren't related at all. All of a sudden, you know, our ops department, it became number one priority to find a new rose petal supplier. And we've gone with a much smaller scale florist in a local area. But yeah, these things can go wrong and it can be tricky, but we just have to be willing to think on our feet, think very quickly and kind of pivot our offering where necessary. Wow, it sounds so complicated. <laughs> I applaud you for, for the effort and, and for making it work, really. Talk to me about how people view sort of use upcycling products, is it viewed as inferior to new um, or fresh ingredients? Or do you think that actually that perception is, 
it, it's not a thing. People accept it and they're more embracing and excited by it. Yeah, I have to say it was definitely a concern in our earlier years. And, you know, going back to my brother and I just starting out, we naturally sought lots of advice and mentorship from people who have been in the industry for a really long time and said, oh, look, this is our idea. What do you think? And every single one of them said, yeah, it's really cool, but I wouldn't lead with this because you are essentially talking about issues of waste in the beauty industry. And those things are on the complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think people are going to turn their nose up to this idea because they're going to perceive it as old, unclean, with lesser benefits, etc. So I think that we've had to work more carefully than your average brand to marry up the concept with things like the packaging, the copy, the tone and voice, and of course, proving that our products are not just as good, but actually better than other products and brands out there on the market. And of course, the first part of that is proving the benefits. So you know, coffee is a great example again. So as the coffee is brewed, it's been proven that the level of antioxidants in it actually increases. So arguably, brewed coffee is better for your skin than fresh coffee. Again, with these ingredients, we will put them through clinical trials so that any claims that we are making are proven. We've got the certifications that I mentioned at the beginning that cover different categories. So you've got like animal welfare certifications, like vegan cruelty-free, but then you've got things like soil association, organic, which is again, part of proving the value and yeah, but well, essentially the value of the ingredient that we're working with. And then the other side of it is, is the language that we choose to use. So we don't say waste ingredients. We stick to the word upcycled and like leftover, unloved. Those are slightly more romantic terms than just being like rubbish or trash or waste, which is not the sorts of words that you want to associate with the sorts of ingredients that you put on your skin. And we stay really vocal and transparent with our processes. So again, like what I've been saying to you about the fact that we collect that coffee every single day, it's arguably more fresh than uh, and, and of a higher quality as well, because we are collecting it from artisan coffee shops. It's going to be Arabica coffee. It's not going to be robusta co coffee, which is a lot less expensive the sort of thing that you would get with an instant coffee because other brands using this ingredient would be buying it, whereas we're not buying it. So yeah, we have to do a lot. We have to think carefully about how we communicate what we do. But yeah, we've had over 25,000 five-star reviews. We get sent before and after pictures every single day. So we make sure those pictures are on our website listings. It's all about essentially proving that the products work just as well. And as the brand grows, of course, that gets easier. But we think incredibly carefully about all of these different things and how we communicate them. It also feels like attitudes are changing towards whether it's secondhand, whether it's upcycling, or whether it's reusing. And I suppose you're on the positive side of that trend then, because actually people are becoming more tolerant and more understanding about the benefits of, of working with products um, in these ways and the impact that they have on the planet and sustainability. I mean, I think you only have to look at like mainstream advertising, particularly on TV, to see the way the conversations changed over years. You know, when I was younger, no one was mentioning vegan ingredients, even cruelty-free, that sort of like even natural, to be honest, or organic. These weren't big concepts more than 10 years ago. And, and now it's crept into the everyday 
uh, more and more and more. And I think now the shift is that, you know, I use this, I use a phrase, which is natural is the new normal and normal is boring. To stand out, you've got to go a step further. You know, I have people these days come up to me and say, I'm thinking of starting a skincare brand. And I'm like, oh, that's exciting. You know, what, what's your USP? And they're like, oh, it's all going to be organic. And I'm like, okay, that would have been okay 15 years ago as a new concept, but that's no longer enough. And I think that one thing that Art Circle has done brilliantly is push the boundary to what the next thing is. And for us, that was circularity. And so I think because of the success of our brand, being pioneers in this space, but really rising in the ranks now towards being much more well-known, you know, our products now sell in over 45 countries. And so I think, yeah, we've we pushed that out and are showing that it's not just about being natural or vegan anymore. Uh, and I think everyone's jumping onto this bandwagon. And I look at mainstream brands now who are starting to put out products which are with refillable packaging or with an upcycled ingredient. And I'm like, yeah, it's it's working. It's becoming mainstream. And I think that that's really exciting. And that's a great example of the positive influence that smaller brands and new brands can bring is they force change or they show a different way of doing business for bigger established brands. And they can really, you know, punch above their weight because I think shoppers start to see that actually... If this small brand can do it, why can't these bigger companies with more resources available to them be able to do it? So it causes them to ask more of those bigger brands as well. So I think there's just such a positive spin and upward spin with companies like you. I wanted to talk about certification because you probably have the most number of certifications that I've seen. One that I'd never heard of. Oh. I mean, I'd never heard of plastic negative as a certification. Uh, it sounds very obvious what it is from its name. But um, can you talk to us about all of your certifications and sort of how you've chosen them, why you've chosen them, and what they mean? Yes. Certifications is a really interesting topic, I think, because when you first start out, they're not necessarily an option which is viable to you because they all come with Big audits, which take a lot of time, particularly as the brand gets bigger and supply chain and the number of products becomes more complicated. And they can be very costly as well. And most of those are annual fees or fees applied to each product that you want to have certified. So we have gradually over the years identified which certifications we wanted to go for. And we've tried to choose certifications that are either very well known, operate in different categories or can be umbrellas for broader respect and trust of a brand. In recent times, you know, greenwashing is a massive thing. And as lots of brands, big and small, aim and claim to be more sustainable, you know, these, these words aren't actually monitored that carefully. What does sustainable actually mean? You know, you can say something's organic and actually it contains only very, very, very few organic ingredients which is where certifications come in as stamps of trust and approval that if you're saying something is, then it is. So the first one that we got was Soil Association Organic. And that was because, again, that was a bit of an umbrella. So it also has a sub-certification, which is just for natural. Then we went down the vegan and cruelty-free route because it was so evident that that was important. <laughs> then we did Plastic Negative, and that was very purposeful because I think that one of the primary reasons that the beauty industry and cosmetics have such a bad reputation in terms of sustainability is because of the use of packaging and the waste associated with that. And it's a really difficult thing to overcome as a brand, particularly a small brand, because the size of the products that we are putting out are often very small and they have 
pipettes and bits of rubber. They, they require lots of different materials in order for them to be usable. And those are very, very difficult to recycle. So the plastic negative certification was one that we come across that as soon as we found out about it, we knew we wanted to do it. And what I particularly love about it is it's a bit of a put your money where your mouth is kind of certification. What plastic negative means is that we have calculated our overall use of plastic as a business. That accounts for both direct plastic, which might be any plastic that we choose to include in our packaging, but also indirect plastic, which is not something that we have taken an active decision over as a brand, but we can't really control it. But we're still using it in some way because our brand exists. Quite difficult to explain, but that primarily means goods in that we receive from other businesses. We've ordered the product. The product might arrive wrapped in plastic. We didn't choose that, but because we've purchased the product, it still accounts as part of our broader calculation. This then gets converted into a weight quantity of plastic, which has to be recovered by waste workers out in Goa in India. And we pay those waste workers wages in order to recover that plastic. And they recover that plastic from within 10 kilometers of any coastline. So you know that that plastic was ocean bound. It's MLP, which stem, stands for multi-layered plastic, which is non-recyclable. And if it weren't for us kind of inputting financially into this, then it wouldn't be recovered. And a plastic neutral certification would be paying enough to recover as much plastic as your brand produces. A plastic negative certification is recovering twice as much plastic as your brand produces. And that's, that's, I think, one of those things where we're going, again, like I said in the previous answer, a bit above and beyond here. It's not just about covering our tracks of the impact of our brand's existence, but actively trying to have a positive impact. And I think particularly with cosmetics, it's important to do that. I mean, interestingly, we don't actually use that much plastic. <laughs> our, our packaging is 99% plastic-free, and we, use, we offer plastic-free refills for our 1%. And of course, we also have that full packaging return scheme. So you can buy our toner, for example, which does have a spray function, which is almost impossible to get without it containing plastic. I've actually not come across a single one, but I can guarantee when there is a single one, it will be unbelievably expensive. <laughs> so that's one of the things where we've chosen to have that bit of plastic because it aids in the hygienic use of the product itself. But overall, you know, our, our plastic usage is very minimal. But that's kind of what the plastic negative certification is in a nutshell. It's quite an abstract concept for now, but essentially we are paying to actively recover non-recyclable plastics. Wow, that's pretty impressive, actually. And even I'm learning so much on this. Talk to me about your B Corp certification. Why did you choose to um, pursue this? Yeah, B Corp's another one which was a big ambition for us as the brand was growing. It took us, well, again, it's, it's a bit stressful because our supply chain is so complicated. So with B Corp, they are well respected as being one of the most thorough and difficult to achieve certifications. The audit took us just under a year. And what B Corp means is that you are legally required to report on key pillars Things like governance, workers, your values, uh, environmental impact, etc. And so we have to go right back to the source of all of these ingredients that we work with, even delving into their original life in whatever industry they came from. So as you can imagine, it's a huge amount of work behind the scenes in order to get all of the 
you know, information and documentation that they need in order to get the actual certification. But once you've got it, I feel like most consumers now, uh, B Corp's a fast growing certification, but it's one of the best for like overall trust that you're a brand that's existing for good. You know, you're not going to be just pushing for profit without a sort of responsible mindset. You'll always keep your values intact. And in fact, you have to prove that you're keeping your values intact as you grow. So it's it was definitely one that we were keen to get. It was one that took a long time to get, but it's a really important one, I think, in the age of transparency and in you know, in the fight against greenwashing. Uh, we were we were very happy when we when we finally got our result back. It sounds like quite a quite a journey. And I have spoken to other small brands and sustainable or responsible brands. And one of the biggest sort of challenges that they've they've said is it's exactly what you've covered. It's time to complete these processes because if you're a founder of a, a brand or a business and you're every department, then really difficult to, to find that time to complete the requirements um, for these certifications. And also the barriers of cost. Um, I know that, you know, for smaller businesses, they do have reduced fees, but actually combined with the time element, it can actually be quite quite taxing for smaller businesses and brands until they get to a certain size and scale. And I know mm-hmm. for my brand as well, you know, it's one of the reasons that we haven't pursued it because, well, I've kind of, I remember going on the B, B Corp website and going through the questionnaires, but then actually when you look at the actual proof required now, you know, sometimes it's like you work with the eyeball trust, like we work with our manufacturers and we see things. And so we believe, we know and believe things, but it's what you said. It's it's about then being able to prove it. And that's the sort of the yeah. we have. It's like, okay, so we believe it um, and what we can see is true. But yeah, I I, yeah. I think they're hugely valuable and um, certainly quite challenging to pursue in sort of the wider scheme of things. So well done to you. And dare I ask what, what your next wow. thing? <laughs> Great question. I mean, I completely agree with what you've just said. And that's why we only got it. I think it was right at the start of this year or the end of last year. And that's six and a half years into our brand journey. There's no way we could have done it as the team of less than maybe six, seven people. Now we're a team of 17 and in certain roles do ebb and flow through the course of the year. So we, it was a, a side project of our key account manager who's in our sales team because a lot of her work is speaking to buyers who go through range reviews only at certain times of the year. So it was a perfect role within our team because she has quieter periods. So she could fully invest time in actually gaining the B Corp certification and the incredible amount of work that has to go into it. So, which is why it's a kind of a pipe dream for so many brands first starting out. You know, it's, it's a long-term goal, not a short-term goal for, for many reasons. Next one, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm getting a lot of requests or, uh, yeah, the, but well, a lot of requests, I suppose, around palm oil certification. So we are palm oil free, but that's not certified. So I think that's one that's at the top of my mind. But also it's covered by the Soil Association certification, but people don't know that. And that's one of the things that's difficult. If, if the consumer doesn't actually know that, then you still have to put the budget behind it. But I don't think we're in a major rush for now. Like the back of our packaging is pretty full with the certifications that we've got. Um, we have very limited retail space on our packaging because our products are physically small. But yes, Palm Isles on my radar. It's a real challenge that actually there's not a single certification that covers 
sustainability because actually sustainability is so complex. And if, as you've sort of mentioned, yeah. plastic use, it's CO2 emissions and it's waste reduction. Uh, it's paying workers and wa- workers living wages or more and, you know, letting them have a dignified way of life. Because all of your products are obviously made in the UK, so they would be kind of, you know, monitored to that level. But it's a shame that there's not one single certification that can cover everything. So for a shopper, I mean, I'm kind of thinking of, of like supermarket food labels where they have like traffic light colours. And, you know, if something's like plastic tree, then it gets a little green index. And if it's, um, mm. I almost feel like something like that needs to be introduced, but how you would even um, <laughs> quantify it or even create any certification for it is sort of, totally eludes me but I just you know I sympathize with the shopper and I sympathize with the brands because from a brand from a brand's perspective it's so much work and you've really been very clever in your use of people and resources and time and you've been able to have it as a side project um, and you've obviously got a very supportive team who care about what you do so you've been able to make it but it's quite a challenge it's an interesting one let's see where the future goes because I know the EU is also starting to pull in legislation around greenwashing and claims, but I'm keeping my eyes open to see how they how they monitor that and, you know, whether they just go after the bigger companies and the bigger brands and hold them accountable, or whether this will sort of be rolled out to smaller companies as well. And, you know, what exactly they're going to be measuring as part of their sustainability legislation. Hmm. Well, anyway, let's see where that, that goes. Now, talk to me. So obviously you set up your own business. And I had this with my brand as well. You know, we had this wonderful idea of what sustainability looked like. And then when we went live, there were compromises that had to be made because reality got in the way. Certain things weren't possible. Certain lead times weren't possible. Couldn't meet MOQs for necessarily for the things that we wanted. What has that journey looked like for you? What have you struggled with? What have you had to compromise on sometimes? Or have you managed to kind of balance the short-term versus the long-term decisions that you've made? Oh, what a great question. I think most of the compromises that we have had to make are around packaging, particularly in those early years. So at the moment, all of our packaging is printed directly onto its material. So we have no labeling whatsoever. And that's because our volumes are large now. When you first start out, that is not an option. So you have to use labels stuck onto products or the only other affordable option, which have a lesser MOQ, which is plastic. So our very first iteration was in aluminium tins with a label on it, but these are water-based, like these products have to be used around water. So to find labels that don't contain animal byproducts like beeswax or elements of plastic in them is near impossible. And the actual products were leaking and stuff like that as well. So it didn't work. Version two, we went into plastic tubes very short term because we physically, there was no other way that we could get a product out to market and make enough sales to justify doing investment rounds, getting in more money in order to create version three. So it's, it's, it's really hard when you're first starting out and you obviously don't have large volumes of orders coming through. And, and those are the sorts of sacrifices that we have to make. We also, through the global supply chain crisis that came about on the outbreak of war and post-COVID, Brexit, oh my goodness, all of these things massively impacted the sourcing of the materials that we use for our packaging. And in that time, again, we were faced with a decision of, 
okay, well, do we make everything out of stock? <laughs> but we still have payroll. We still have rent in numerous warehouses, fulfillment costs, our office rent, et cetera. We've got huge costs associated as a business. So how are we going to survive if we have to pull our products off the website because we don't have the actual packaging? And during that time, again, the biggest sacrifice really, for me anyway, was just on visual aesthetic because I'm so proud and we put so much work into designing a beautiful brand with beautiful and highly consistent packaging, which is ownable and very recognizable as our own. You know, the frosted glass, which are Pantone matched colors based on where the product is used. So we have a color for the face, we have a color for the body, we have a color for accessories, we have a color for hair care and a color for our pamper kit as well. That brand look is something we've worked so hard on and of course spent a lot of money in developing, but then we couldn't get the packaging to us. We just had to make the choice of doing it on, on the fly, on, on the cheap and on the quick. And we had these awful labels that we just had to stick onto clear packaging. And it's not something that I was used to seeing associated with our products over the last four years or so. And so that was a little bit painful to see all of this temporary labeled packaging up on the website. But we explained this to our customers. And every time we have to make a decision like this, we are very active in communicating these business decisions with our customer base. Our customer base is really engaged. We have closed Facebook groups with our most engaged customers, which we use kind of market research. They test our products that are in development. We get early reviews and we honestly make a lot of our decisions based on running polls and uh, focus groups and things like that. So we're quick to tell them, okay, look, you're going to notice that our packaging is going to look really bad <laughs> for a few months, but this is why we've done it. And the alternative was that everything was out of stock. And then honestly, the business might have had to fold because we can't really afford to do that. So yeah, I think it's natural. And I think in the in the last four or five years of absolutely chaos global situations that we've been dealing with, customers are quite understanding, which is quite nice on some things. So I think so long as you're a brand that's open and communicates when you make these concessions, then they are they're patient with you, I suppose, and they understand why it has to be done. Same goes with like raising prices and stuff like that in recent times. I've noticed more often than not, customers get it and they'd rather that you're able to survive and they know how hard it is for a brand to survive at the moment that's less than 10 years old. And so if you have to make these concessions, then then I think people are generally understanding. It seems like you work with a really high level of transparency and trust and that shows in sort of the response that you're getting from your shoppers and your consumers and your supporters. I think, you know, is thank you for your honesty as well, because you've covered topics with, you know, a great honesty that others might not want to have shared. I think you really highlight to me the difference between the founder of business versus a sustainable founder of a business, because it's about intent and a sustainable founder is always going to look for better. And it doesn't mean they're always going to be perfect or they're always going to get right, but their intention is always based in trying to get the best decision and balance for their business, for the people, for the planet. And sometimes there are bumps in the road where you have to make compromises. But I think you really highlight to me a sustainable what a sustainable founder does and how they make their decisions is striving for better. And so I really, really appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank now, you. That's very nice to hear. <laughs> well, I also feel like a founder of a business is somebody who just wants to work for themselves, but a sustainable mm. founder 
someone who that that wouldn't be enough they need that purpose of betterment and i can see that in your company's mission but also just speaking to you in the way that you run your business the decisions that you take you're weighing up the pros and cons but ultimately your your forward goal really looks like it's you know sort of to see how you can improve and how you can make a positive difference and i think that really shines through so yeah, I'm really impressed, <laughs> actually, more impressed than even so before I came into this conversation with you. Now, so I'm going to ask about Dragon's Den. Um, yourself and your brother, Will, were on Dragon's Den. Can you share that experience? And also kind of, I want to go past that, like, so you get, you get some dragons on board. And then what happens? Are they still there? Are they useful? Like, <laughs> talk to Great me. question. It's... It's something I get asked about all the time, which is so funny because we went on like five years ago, maybe now. So it was a long, long time ago. And yeah, it really does show the power of television, really. It was it was a unique experience. And I would actually recommend it to anybody who's interested in going on. I was literally having a, a WhatsApp chat with my friend who owns a food company who's just had their audition and giving him all of my advice based on our experience and saying, look, just go for it. Like, I really don't think you've got anything to lose. We... Yeah, as I say, like it, it captures people's imagination and curiosity. And it, we've had over a million views on our little YouTube clip of that. And so it, it definitely gets great reach. It was unique for us because of the timing that we went on. So two years into our brand, we actually rebranded. We changed our name. We changed our packaging. We changed the aesthetic of the way the brand looked. The concept, the formulations, the products themselves were identical. But we had a full, full rebrand. However, that wasn't actually released on the market yet. So when we went into the den, we had to pitch the previous brand. So we kind of went in, we, we just closed an investment round where we were overfunded within three days. So cash flow wasn't necessarily an issue at that specific time. It is most of the time, but not then. So we kind of went in with a bit of a feeling of luxury, really, because there's a huge marketing opportunity. There's the potential to be on primetime television for up to 15 minutes. And so we knew we went in with certain things in our minds about what would make us likely to get that slot. Because you can go into the den, you can have the whole experience and they don't air it. So we know there's got to be an element of drama, a bit of TV, a bit of humor, whatever it might be. And so we knew that if we got an offer, we were definitely going to go to the back of the room and do the little negotiation and all of that. We actually ended up doing that four or five times. They cut it down a lot in, in our episode, but... We, we tried to kind of get the TV elements in there. It was as terrifying and, and intimidating as you can probably imagine. I'd be lying if I said that, that wasn't the case. And equally, I was so, so happy to have someone like my brother by my side who has a financial brain because I do not. So whilst I led the presentation at the beginning, like the opening pitch, as soon as we then stood back and they tried the products, it went straight into financial interrogation. And again, I'd be lying if I said that that wasn't the case. And they were very detailed in that. They would change a variable and say, okay, well, if we take away that stockist, how does that impact your projections this year and this year? And ah, it, that was quite scary. <laughs> so you definitely have to know your stuff and don't be fooled into thinking that it's not a thorough process. We were in front of them for just under three hours, I think, stood there in high heels, which was good fun. But... We got three offers, which was fantastic. We shook hands with Tuka and Tej on a joint offer. And then we met up with them after the show. We went to their offices. We met their teams. 
But because we were actually in a rebrand situation that was about six months through, we felt it would only be fair that they uh, renegotiate with us based on the evolved brand, which was so much more mature. It took all of the learnings and the mistakes that we'd made in our first two years and refined them. And it answered all of the criticisms that they had made of us in the den, which again was so reassuring. We're, we're a family run business. And when you first start out, it's difficult to get honest feedback because everyone wants to be kind and to support you and to encourage you in your journey. So they're not going to rip you to shreds, but the dragons will. <laughs> and so you, it's a really good opportunity, even just for that, either to, to make you think, okay, maybe this isn't the right thing or to justify the decisions that you were making behind the scenes, which we were with our rebrand. So then we went through this maybe six month period of renegotiation. But ultimately, what lots of people don't know is we decided that it wasn't worth it. The amount of investment that we were going to get for how much equity we were going to have to give up wasn't fair to us. And we we decided to walk away. So everything that we have achieved in the last few years has not been with the Dragons. We never actually worked with them. So we we had a wonderful primetime TV opportunity and we still use the episode in a lot of our advertising, digital advertising at the moment because people love it. And you can create some really good hooks. So, I mean, I, honestly, about three hours ago in our content channel, our Slack stream, which we communicate through, there was a new idea that came through, which was just tiny snippets of the dragon saying, I hate your branding. Your name sucks. This is going to haunt you for a really long time. And then you cut it. And then it's just all of the design awards that we've won over the last four years. And we we have a lot of fun being quite playful with the snippets from the show and then kind of proving how well we've done despite the criticism. So yeah, it was a fantastic experience. It was challenging, terrifying, brilliant in terms of brand awareness. And it's stuck in people's minds, even though we had a different brand name at the time. And we had to pretend like we were that brand name still. And I, yeah, I'd recommend it to anyone. I'm so surprised by that. I didn't realize you didn't still have the dragons on board. So to have kind of achieved this incredible success without them, I mean, like in my head, I'm like even more applause to you. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got to back yourself sometimes in life, right? And when we went in there, we already had had major retailer relationships that we had started, you know, Urban Outfitters, Waitrose, Boots, all of these conversations were already in play and we were already in stores. So a lot of what they had to offer, I think we just, it was, don't get me wrong, it was a big gamble, but we ultimately decided, no, let's just try. Let's try this on our own and see what we can do. We're off to a good start. So let's just keep going for it. And let's just take the opportunity as a marketing opportunity, which it was fantastic for. Incredible. Just to sort of wrap things up, what sustainable decisions do you make or how do you kind of choose sustainable things in your day-to-day personal life? Like, what do you look out for? Um, How far in your personal life do you take sustainability? A good question. I think my friends would describe me as very, very, very good. But (laughs) the average upcircle customer would probably be less impressed. I think I do... I think I do my best. I do as much as I'm comfortable with without fully feeling like I massively sacrifice things in my life. I cycle just about everywhere. Uh, I don't own a car, so I feel like my transport choices are top-notch. I eat a largely plant-based diet. I would be lying if I said it was completely plant-based. Of course, my skincare and makeup routine is pretty top tier. 
And I'm I'm really good with food waste. I don't believe in sell-by dates. I'm very cautious with what I buy and meal planning, recycling packaging really well with food waste as well. Really good on like personal care items, sanitary items, stuff like that. However, I'm far from flawless. I, 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 there, are, there are certain things that I have in, I don't know, my makeup routine, let's say, that are not perfect, but I prioritize performance over some of the better option. Or to be honest, you know, money has been really tight in certain periods of this brand and myself and my brother pay ourselves less than anyone else in our team. And so financial decisions also have to come into play. And we know full well, particularly in the cost of living crisis, that unfortunately, sometimes people's values have to be put down to a the second slot when you have to make choices based on keeping your small amount of money that you might have spread across everything that you need to buy. Yeah, in short, I'd say I'm pretty good, but I'm far from perfect. And and I'm really okay with that. I've always got my eye out for new, interesting options, products, whatever it may be. And I don't beat myself up around things that aren't perfect. And I think it's it's much better. This is now a very commonly used phrase, but it's much better to have loads of people doing things as well as they can than a few people doing it perfectly. And I think that veganism is a really interesting one on that topic as well. I think... There are a small proportion of the population that are willing to be 100% vegan. And so it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Why don't we all just strive for a decent amount of reduction? And that's going to be way more impactful. But when people have this vibe of all or nothing, I think that's when you feel overwhelmed or like you're restricted or that it's boring. And then ultimately you give up and you go back to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So I'd say I'm at like a 70 to 80% across most categories. And that's that's good by me. <laughs> well, I think what you've said resonates so strongly with how, how I feel as well. I remember a few years ago, um, I was traveling and I met a group of people and they were going for dinner and they were like, oh, but we're just having a vegan day today. And I, I didn't understand what they meant. And I was like, can you clarify? And they said, oh, just twice a week, we just have vegan days. And I just, this is probably like, this is pre-COVID. So, you know, about seven years ago. And like in my head, I was like, that's such an unusual way to do it. But I applaud it. Mm-hmm. It goes back to what you said, like trying to do 100% of something can be really taxing and it can feel really impossible. And, and it's a real mm-hmm. to people sort of making those positive steps of change. Whereas if we're more flexible with ourselves, if we're more tolerant and we kind of do the best we can, it can make a huge impact. And that is what we need. We need more people to do lots of small things about affordability as well, because actually uh, a lot of the time sustainable products come at high prices because actually you're not using exploited labor. You're not damaging the environment. Maybe you're pursuing certification and all of these things mean that you have slightly higher costs than your mainstream, cheaper alternative. Um, But actually what I love that you've done with UpCircle is that you've achieved this affordable price point and you've kind of managed to carry on these extra costs as well. So it's really something remarkable. But thank you so much for your time today, Anna. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I think I really, like I can see that you're so methodical and intentional in the way that you work. You have so much integrity combined with creativity. um, And I think, Uh, You guys are clearly on the up and up. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. That was absolutely lovely to hear those kind words. And it's been brilliant chatting with you too. So thanks for having me on.